Welcome to Everyday Wellness Podcast. I'm your host, nurse practitioner, Cynthia Thurlow. This podcast is designed to educate, empower, and inspire you to achieve your health and wellness goals. My goal and intent is to provide you with the best content and conversations from leaders in the health and wellness industry each week and impact over a million lives. Today, I had the honor of connecting with Dr. Judy Morgan. She's a certified veterinary acupuncturist, chiropractitioner, and food therapist. She retired from clinical practice in 2020, but remains an incredible advocate for veterinary care here in the United States and abroad. We spoke at length about her background that led her to both traditional allopathic and complementary veterinary medicine. We discussed reasons for why the health of our pets are declining and why 60% of pets are obese in the United States. We discussed what's wrong with the pet food industry and how most of it has been bought out by Mars Pet Care, which is one of these huge conglomerates that oversees a lot of the processed food industry as well. Differences between rendered versus food grade meat and food, the debacle around grain-free diets, what should we feed our food and why, why vaccines are so controversial and how to navigate core versus non-core vaccines, how to determine what type of flea and tick preventatives to use the impact of chemicals and plastics in our pet's health, specific concerns surrounding lipomas, tooth care, exercise, and grooming. I hope you will enjoy this discussion as much as I did recording it. And for those of you that do not know, many years ago, when I went back and took pre-med classes, I originally had intended to become a vet, but I have such bad allergies, I decided against it. So Interviewing Dr. Morgan was really a treat. You definitely want to check out her books as well as her resources online. Welcome, Dr. Morgan. I've really been looking forward to this conversation. I'm really happy to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah, absolutely. So obviously, most of my guests are, you know, kind of traditional or functional or integrative trained healthcare practitioners. And everyone that listens to this podcast knows that I have a tremendous affinity for animals and bringing on a holistic focused veterinarian has been something I've been trying to do for a while. And so I'm so glad that you are joining us this morning. I would love for you to share with my community a bit about your background because you do have quite a wide array of tools in your toolbox. You know, you were a traditionally trained allopathic veterinarian, and then you also have these other kind of complementary medicine aspects to the care that you were delivering to your patients for many, many years. And I would love for you to share a bit about how your trajectory from kind of traditional veterinary medicine kind of evolved over time. Well, I graduated in 1984, so I'm going to age myself a little bit from veterinary school in the Midwest. And when you are trained at a traditional school in the 80s in the Midwest, it is very traditional. And I practiced traditional medicine for about the first 10 years, and I was really frustrated. I actually hated my job. I hated my profession, and I could not consider doing that for the rest of my life because what I was on this treadmill that we find with traditional medicine of treating chronic disease, more medications, prescription diets, and 
my patients never really seemed to thrive. They didn't get better. They make sort of maintained if we were lucky, but we really weren't curing things. I mean, acute disease, they've got vomiting and diarrhea. Yeah, great. I can make that better in, in a day. But the chronic things, the chronic inflammatory diseases were just frustrating. And I thought if I have to spend the rest of my life talking about fleas, ticks, heartworms, and vaccinations and prescription diets, I will probably just die. I couldn't do it anymore. And then I accidentally took a chiropractic course. It was called veterinary orthopedic manipulation, and it was touted as being able to help our patients recover faster after surgery, help them with mobility issues, back problems. And I thought, well, that sounds great. My partner at the time did orthopedic surgeries. I did not. And I thought, well, this would be a way for me to contribute. So I signed up for the course and within the first couple of hours, I went, I think we're talking about chiropractic. I don't know if I even believe in this. And of course we had paid for it and it was a long course. So I stuck it out days and days. And when I got back to practice, I thought, well, I just spent all this time and money. I'm going to give this a try. And so I literally, I think my first week back, I treated 90% of the patients with chiropractic and the differences that I saw, like literally were miraculous and life-changing just from that one tool that I had added in my toolbox. And of course, then I had to go through the crying and the guilt of, oh, I could have helped all these animals that I put to sleep because they were having mobility mm. issues or they blew a disc in their back and I could have helped and I didn't know. And the thing is, you don't know what you don't know, so you can't beat yourself up for that. But it did open a door for me. And I mean, I was raised in a very traditional family. So it opened that door of what else is available. And I started looking at everything. I looked at homeopathy. I looked at traditional Chinese veterinary medicine. I looked at raindrop therapy, essential oils, color therapy, you name it. I was going to figure out how I could put that in my toolbox. And so then over time, I picked and chose which things really spoke to me, which worked the best for me, which things really got me excited about helping my patients. And traditional Chinese veterinary medicine was really where I landed. Acupuncture was the first thing that I learned and I loved it. And I started learning Chinese herbs. I used a lot of those. And now I also use Western herbs. And then I started studying food therapy, which was the one that just made me light up. And so that's really been my focus as my base starting point for every single patient ever since then. So I'm retired from clinical practice now, and now my time is spent teaching, but acupuncture, chiropractic, herbal therapy, food therapy made a world of difference for my patients. Yeah. And it's so exciting because for me, I kind of, I think I stumbled upon your account on Facebook. And I think Facebook is like this weird vortex where occasionally I stumble upon really valuable content. And I went down this rabbit hole and I don't give my email out unless I really, really, really want to get the content. And so every week I'll say to my husband, because we walk our dogs several times a day, I'm like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm interviewing this holistic veterinarian. I'm so excited because it's so aligned with my own trajectory of being in traditional allopathic medicine, being critical care, cardiology, ER medicine as an NP, and then pivoting because I kept saying so much of what we're doing with humans is a lifestyle mediated issue. Yes. And we're not talking about the stuff that really makes a big difference. And so I always think with humans in particular, it all starts with the nutrition piece. And I know we will are going to unpack 
the pet food industry, which I was disturbed to learn a lot that I know listeners probably are not aware of. So over the course of this, you know, very lengthy and broad career, why do you think, and it, this has just been my outsider's layman's perspective, why is the health of our pets declining? Because I see kind of celebrated on social media, you know, very obese pets and people are like laughing about it because they think it's funny. And I'm like, no, that's actually animal abuse because your animals, I mean, if you put food in front of an animal and I have a Labradoodle and he will eat anything and everything, he would eat all day long if I let him. And we can't do that. Like part of why the love that I have for my children, my family, my pets it's to not overfeed them, but we have a degree of obesity in our domesticated pets that is bordering. I think the statistic I read was 60% of pets in the United States are obese yes. and that's probably conservative. So as you know, you went through this very lengthy career, why do you think the health of our animals is declining or why are we starting to see the same sequelae we see in humans in our pets as well? Well, the statistics are really sad. Three out of four dogs that live past 10 are going to have a cancer diagnosis. It may or may not kill them, but they're going to have a cancer diagnosis. And 50% of all dogs will get a cancer diagnosis. And we're losing a lot of them in their middle age, like between five and seven of cancers, which is scary as all get out. And if we go back to the 1970s, the average age of a middle-aged dog, golden retriever size, was about 17. And now that's 10. We have literally cut their lifespan in half. And there's a lot of reasons for that. And if we look at, now I'm not an anti-vaxxer and I will say that vaccines have been pivotal for our pets. In uh, When I was in veterinary school, that was when parvovirus first became a big problem in dogs. And we were losing puppies in particular left and right. We had ICU wards full of puppies with bloody vomiting and diarrhea that were dying. And so that vaccine has saved a lot of lives and it's made a huge difference. But one of the problems is that there was never enough study done on how long does a vaccine last. So we look at our children and we give them their childhood vaccines. And then we don't look at vaccinating them and boostering them for years, decades, or ever. We didn't really look at that in dogs and cats. And so what happened is arbitrarily, it was a sign that they'll just get an annual booster. So one of the things that has been done, and there's been more and more and more vaccines added on, it's not just parvo. We Some animals will go in and they will be given 17 vaccines in one visit, which is just so scary. The immune system kind of goes, you just killed me. I don't even know what to do with that. It's like having all of your puzzle pieces thrown at you at one time and it's a thousand puzzle pieces and you have five minutes to figure out how to deal with that. So that's one of the problems that we're seeing. We are causing a lot of immune stress and immune autoimmune disease from over vaccination. The other thing that has changed a lot for our pets is processed pet food. So if we look back in the 50s and 60s, well, the 50s in particular, and before that, it was much more common for our pets to be fed scraps from what we were eating. So if we look at when more people lived on the farms and it was, okay, we have left over this or we have left over that, and this is what we're sharing with our pets, and we weren't feeding them highly processed synthetic 
diets. And that has really changed over the years. And the pet food industry has changed for the worse over the years. So that's the second thing that is causing problems for our pets and shortening their lifespan. The third thing is the amount of chemicals that we are throwing at our pets because we have become a society where one, we want a quick and easy fix for everything. We never want to see a parasite. If we see a flea, if we see a tick, we freak out. Now, what did we do back before we had all these chemicals? We would comb our dogs. We would They would have a healthier diet. Their immune system would be better at fighting off parasites. And now the veterinary profession and the pharmaceutical industry has gotten to the point where they have a mantra. Every pet every month all year long well the little chihuahua who lives in a high rise in new york city has a hugely different lifestyle from the farm dog who lives outside in louisiana all year round we can't even compare those two lifestyles yet the veterinary profession and pharmaceutical industry label them all the same and say this is what they should get every month all year round and it's killing them where you're putting pesticides on them in them and we are expecting them to deal with that if your human pediatrician said to you here i want you to give your child this pesticide orally i want them to eat this pesticide every month so that they don't ever get intestinal parasites or they don't ever have a tick bite them which by the way most of them don't repel anyway would you do that i don't think you would and i think if your pediatrician said to you hey here's this box of i actually have a cereal box that i made it's called holistic organic human kibble and it has all the vitamins and minerals that your child needs all you ever need to do is pour this dry brown balls into their cereal bowl twice a day have them eat that they'll be perfectly fine they've got all the nutrition they need in that little processed vitamin added food you would look at your pediatrician and say, wait a minute, what? What happened to fruits and vegetables? What happened to healthy meats? What happened to eggs? What happened to fish? We don't need a synthetic diet. We need whole foods. So that's, sorry, that's soapbox. <laughs> no, no, no. It's so validating on a lot of different levels because as I was preparing for this podcast and I was looking at what had happened to kind of domesticated animals over the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years, I was like, humans health has been declining and it's reflected in our animals as well. And so what does that really demonstrate for us? I think, you know, starting with what's wrong with the pet food industry, and this is something that I'm so grateful. I had a really amazing vet in Washington, DC, which is where we lived until we relocated two years ago. And he was very collaborative and I'll just call him out. Dr. B was fantastic, very collaborative, very open-minded didn't force anything, was always open to discussing everything. And the first thing he told me when we had gotten a puppy was, Cynthia, things have changed since the last time you had a puppy. He said, now veterinary medicine has gotten appropriately expensive because now the technology is advanced. We have all these specialists, but he said, you just need one bad illness or one catastrophic injury and you'll go through $10,000 like that. So he said, you, you, know, you have to have pet insurance. But the other piece that he encouraged me to consider was the quality of the pet food and to not assume that thing or not to assume that things that he said, even stuff that's sold in my veterinary practice, he's like, I don't per se give to my own dogs, but we have to have it available. He said the stuff that's in the grocery store, a lot of what's available to pets, is, to your point, is highly processed, 
highly refined. And also, you know, the other piece is this global pet food industry is 320 global. So internationally, $320 billion per year, 50 billion here in the United States alone for food and treats. And the biggest company for pet food in the United States is Mars Pet Care. Now you may think of Mars. Mars is that candy company. They have actually 41 brands of dog food alone and cat food. So just to give you a sense, like not only does this conglomerate actually control a lot of the processed food industry for humans, it also now controls a vast chunk of the pet food industry. I would love for you to kind of speak to the difference between feed grade versus food grade meat or food, because I I think the average person probably does not realize that there is this distinction when animals go to slaughter and they're differentiating that, you know, that this part of the animal is going into the animal food industry and the rest is being given to our pets. And it could be, you know, an abscessed leg on a cow that then goes into the food that we are feeding our pets. And so I think it's helpful to kind of fully appreciate and understand the way that this all works. Okay. Yeah. So as for Mars, their pet division is now bigger than their human division. They also are buying up veterinary practices, emergency veterinary practices. They own our biggest veterinary lab. They own the biggest veterinary imaging system. So they are a conglomerate that is taking over the care of our pets, not in a good way. (laughs) Unfortunately, we are losing the mom and pop veterinary practices, the individual practitioner. It's becoming very expensive to run an individual veterinary clinic. So corporate is taking over and that's not a good thing. And we see the same thing in human medicine as well. But as to feed versus food. So pet food in the United States is regulated by FDA. And then there is a group called AFCO, which is the American Association of Feed Control Officials. They are not a regulatory body. They have no teeth that they cannot enforce anything, but they make all the rules. And so they define what can go into pet food. And they hold big meetings twice a year, usually about 500 people at the meetings. Most of them are regulatory officials, so state regulatory officials who are enforcing labeling and quality of food at the state level. And then we have a lot of FDA people who go and then CVM, which is the Center for Veterinary Medicine. And the rest of the people in the room are representatives of the rendering industry, all the pet food companies. And then of that 500 people, there's usually six or eight who represent the consumers and the pet parents. That's a very tiny amount. And we are hated. We are absolutely hated by regulatory officials because we are speaking up about what is actually going into pet food. So there is a law that states that only animals who have been slaughtered for the purposes of being used for food may be used for human and animal pet food. That is enforced on the human side. It is not enforced on the pet side. And when we've questioned FDA, they said we choose not to enforce it. So they are literally breaking the law. So what is an animal that died otherwise than by slaughter? So an animal who was not slaughtered specifically for food, it could be a cow that died out in the field. It could be a horse that was put down. It could be animals that died 
anyway. So let's look at avian influenza. We have had millions of chickens killed during great floods that happened in North Carolina a couple of years ago. Millions of chickens drowned. Where do you think all of those chickens went? They didn't go to a landfill. All of that dead, putrefying meat was processed into pet food. So how do they do that? So they collect up these carcasses from, you know, farmers will, you know, call up and say, I've got a dead cow, a dead sheep, dead pig, whatever, or I just had to slaughter a bunch of pigs for swine flu, or I had to slaughter a bunch of chickens. And so trucks will go pick them up and then they deliver them to rendering plants. And I'm sorry for anybody who's eating breakfast, lunch, or dinner while they're listening to this. So the rendering plants, the animal, these carcasses are dumped into their parking lots, literally. And they're left out in the sun putrefying, melting. And the way they get away with this is that all of those carcasses are then put in a big cooking vat. And they are what we call rendered, which is they're cooked at high heats and literally melted down. And so then the fat rises to the top as it cools, they skim off the fat. And so that is tallow. And that is used as a flavorant. So they will spray it onto dry kibble to make it taste good. But it's really rancid, disgusting fats. And then the meat that is broken down is then dehydrated into a meat meal. And then there's also a bone meal that is produced. And so that can be used. So if you see a product in the grocery store or wherever, and it says meat meal, that is undefined. If it says beef meal, well, at least we know it was made from cows, or we assume that it's made from cows because that's what it said on the label. Interestingly, there have been quite a few studies done where they've tested pet foods and they've looked at the DNA of what's in the pet foods. And so it might be labeled as a chicken food that only has chicken in it. And yet they will find five or six other proteins in the food. So you think that you're getting what it says on the label, but over 60% of the time you're not. And sometimes they've been tested and it'll say that it's a chicken-based meal and there's not even any chicken in there. So it's a little bit scary because as the consumer, you're like, well, I read the label and I have a dog who has a chicken allergy. So I made sure there was no chicken in there, which by the way, it might be labeled as a beef food, but chicken might be down there in the ingredients. So make sure you read the whole label. So what happens, this food has been basically cooked at very high heats. Now, unfortunately, the head of DARPRO Rendering, which is the largest rendering association in the United States, at an AFCO meeting, he gave the keynote speech a few years ago. And he stood there and said, it is virtually impossible to have rendered meals that do not have euthanasia solution in them because animals who have been euthanized end up in that heap. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't consider any euthanasia solution appropriate to be fed. You know, his answer is, well, it's in such a small amount, it's not going to matter. It does matter. I do not, because what you're told by your veterinarian and by the pet food industry is put the same thing in the bowl twice a day, every day, do not bury it, do not supplement it, do not add anything, you'll screw up the balance, which is a bunch of crap. So if we're feeding our pets euthanasia solution twice a day, every day, year in and year out, what do we end up with? We do not end up with good health. We do not end up with animals who are thriving. We end up with animals who are being literally slowly killed. 
So that's one of the first things. So we don't ever want to see rendered products in the food. And that can be really difficult as the consumer to just know by reading a label. That's what, So sometimes you'll see poultry meal. Well, that should be all birds, but it could be duck, goose, chicken, turkey, whatever. And if it says chicken meal, it should be just chicken. Unfortunately, here's how chickens are processed. They process the whole bird. Now, the legal definition of chicken is the chicken meat without the feathers and the, but do you think anybody's sitting there and plucking all those chickens? No. So they're actually vacuumed into a big vacuum and all ground together. So chicken meal can include feathers. There actually is a dog food on the market that is hydrolyzed chicken feathers. Doesn't say that on the label, but that's what it is. They changed the name to hide the innocent or the guilty. They actually recently just changed the name of glutens. So we used to see corn gluten or you know other glutens on the label. They know that people you know, think that glutens are a bad thing. So at the last meeting, they changed it and now it's called corn protein. So anything that was a gluten before is now a protein. So you don't even know. And that's how the game is played. So waste oil industries come to the AFCO meetings to get their waste oils approved as ingredients in pet feed because AFCO regulates feed for all animals, including livestock. So our dog and cat food is regulated as the same way that livestock feed would be regulated. And by the way, livestock can be fed what do they call it? It's grocery store waste. So when you go to the grocery store and the bakery items are out of date, the dairy items are out of date, and they go in a big container out behind the store, that's picked up and it's ground up and processed and used in livestock feed. They don't take it out of the wrappers. So all that plastic, all those phthalates are ground up and used in livestock feed. It passes in the milk. We're getting all those chemicals. It's really scary. The human food industry is really just as scary as the pet food industry. Today's podcast is sponsored by NutriSense. It combines cutting edge technology and human expertise so you can see how your body responds to different types of nutrition, stress, exercise, sleep, and where you are in your menstrual cycle in real time. And by pairing a continuous glucose monitor with their app and expert nutritional guidance, NutriSense can help you reach your health goals. And the best part is it's not just a program where they send you the CGM and you have to figure it out on your own. Each subscription plan includes one month of free expert nutritionist support. Your nutritionist will work with you one-on-one interpreting your data and providing customized advice to help you reach your health goals. The last time I had my CGM on, my registered dietitian and I troubleshooted over some specific concerns that I had. And whether you're aiming to lose weight, stabilize your energy, or just feel better overall, NutriSense offers the guidance and support you need. And lasting sustainable change takes time and can be achieved through a longer term subscription. That's why I encourage my patients and clients to consider three, six, or 12-month subscriptions where it's actually less expensive and allows you to not only achieve your goals, but also to ensure that you stick to your healthy lifestyle for the long term. As I've mentioned before, I have found the CGMs I have used through NutriSense to be incredibly insightful, specifically to carbohydrate tolerance. I would not have known that plantains spiked my blood sugar without this information. It's also been hugely helpful for tailoring to workouts and sleep quality. And so for me, 
me, even though I am metabolically healthy, I find the insights to be particularly helpful to tailor my lifestyle changes to my blood sugar. Visit NutriSense.io slash EWP and use the code E. WP for $30 off plus one month of free nutritionist support. Be sure to let them know you're a listener of the Everyday Wellness Podcast when they ask you how you heard about them. This is one of my favorite ways to take care of my health and one of my top recommendations for all of my patients and clients. Weight gain is one of many symptoms that our hormones are in decline, especially as we navigate perimenopause into menopause. Dr. Anna, who is a great friend of mine, is an OBGYN who's treated thousands of women just like you and I who experience increasing dryness and even pain in the bedroom as they get older. Jolva is the solution Dr. Anna formulated for her own clients, and it has since been loved by over 100,000 women. It's a feminine cream with DHEA that helps the body regenerate moisture from the inside out. 92.8% of Jolva users experienced a significant improvement in the first four to eight weeks. Get 10% off your first purchase of Jolva by using the link dranna.com slash Cynthia. That's DrAnna.com, Cynthia, and get 10% off your first purchase. I'm speechless and my (laughs) listeners know that that doesn't happen very often because this is even beyond what I had imagined, the depth of the concern of profits over health of our pets. And when I think about some of the things that have come out recently, as an example, you know, this fear mongering about grain-free diets, as an example, I sit in again, like I love everything about pets. So I sit in in a couple of Facebook groups that are actually monitored by vets, but they're traditionally trained. And anytime the concept of grain-free diets come up, it gets their hackles up oh, yeah. and they're like, you know, they're going to end up developing a cardiomyopathy, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And for anyone that's listening, that's not familiar with that term, it's this kind of thickening of the heart muscle. And I guess it happened in a couple of golden retrievers and they've now extrapolated that all grain-free diets are bad. What are your thoughts about grain-free diets? I would imagine that for you, understanding that grain fattens up animals for slaughter and it can fatten us up if we eat too much of it as humans, I would imagine the same thing applies to our animals. So are you, I would imagine you are a proponent of you know meat-focused, meat-centric, vegetable-focused diets for our pets. Yeah, absolutely. So I have not fed grains to my pets in 25 years. And, you know, when we look at price point and getting things in a bag, what is the pet industry going to look for? They or the big pet food industry, they're going to look for how can I meet that protein level? So adult dog, 18% protein level. Okay, well, I could do it with meat, or I could use peas, or I could use grains. And so if only 10% of that 18% protein has to come from meat and the rest can come from grains, wow, I just dropped my bottom line. This is awesome. My profit margins are so much better. When you look at a bag of kibble and corn is the first ingredient and it's a dollar a pound, you are not getting meat. I can just tell you, you are not getting meat. Somewhere in there, you'll probably see some poultry byproduct meal, which is, you know, the feathers and the organs and the intestines and the stuff that, you know, nobody else wants to eat. So the whole grain-free debacle, this is a really interesting story, and I'll see if I can shorten it down a little bit. So there were a couple of nutritionists slash cardiologists 
who are on the payroll of Purina, Hills, Mars, you know, the big companies, you know, they do their research, which is funded by them. Their university chairs are funded by pet food. Hmm, who do you think they work for? And so what's happened over the years because of holistic veterinarians and because really the pet food owner or the pet owners are driving this conversation, the raw food market and the grain-free market has been seeing a steady increase steady increase. And so what has happened to all those cheap grain inclusive diets? They're starting to come down. Then there was also an offer by one of the big pet food companies to buy one of the largest grain free companies and the price was too high. So out comes this study that said that dilated cardiomyopathy was being caused by grain-free diets with zero evidence. So they, a couple of, these couple of cardiologists got together and they were told only to report animals with dilated cardiomyopathy who were on a grain-free diet. Don't bother reporting the other ones. We don't want to know about them. And they came up with a little over 500 cases of dilated cardiomyopathy. Now there are 90 million dogs in this country. They got 500 in this report, and it was a very skewed study. And the F they convinced the FDA to make a big spectacle of this and say, oh my gosh, there may be a link. Now, there were a bunch of studies done, a bunch of us came out and said, you know, this is like the biggest fallacy ever. Let's look, follow the money trail and, you know, look at the number of dogs that were actually diagnosed. And yeah, a lot of them might have been eating grain-free diets because they're more expensive. And if you're going to the cardiologist, you're a client who is spending more on your pet and willing to go, you know, to the nth degree. And then we did find that there were an improportionate number of golden retrievers in the study. So we said, well, maybe golden retrievers have a problem. And I saw that in my practice. So maybe golden retrievers have a problem. Maybe there's a taurine problem, which is one of the amino acids found, oh, by the way, in meat. So I'm not a fan of grain-free kibble. I don't like it any more than I like grain-inclusive kibble. I just don't like kibble because they're doing the same thing. They're putting that grain-free, so they're using a lot of legumes or potatoes to replace the meat protein and still get their bottom line where they want it to be. So I'm not a fan, but my dogs are raw fed or gently cooked and there's no grains. So that is a grain-free diet. And so in their study, I think there was one dog that was a raw fed dog that had dilated cardiomyopathy. They consider that grain free because we don't add grains. What they also did not consider in that study was the breed. By the way, Irish Wolfhounds, Cocker Spaniels, Boxers, Great Danes, Dobermans, like 75% of them develop dilated cardiomyopathy because it's in their genetics, but they didn't include that. So this all occurred over, I don't know, six or seven years. I can't remember when it first started. I have done more social media posts and online rants about this debacle. It's in all my books. Like it just makes me crazy. But the FDA very, very, very quietly and very sneakily in December of 22 on their original post where they said there may be a link, they made a little sentence at the top that says, we have not found any link between grain-free diets and dilated cardiomyopathy. They didn't announce it. There was no press release. It was just quietly added in there. And to top it off, that original sale where they were trying, one company was trying to buy the grain-free company that was the biggest one, Mars ended up buying them at about half the price. Wow. Because their sales went down so much from all, and we still see it. I get cardiology reports every day from clients. I got one today 
where they're talking about you need to include grains in the diet. Grains do not contain taurine. They do not contain carnitine. They're not helping. What they do contain is methionine and cysteine, which the dog's body can combine to make taurine. But why don't we just feed them something high in taurine? Meat. That's what they're supposed to eat. Seems to make a great deal more sense. And thank you for that because I I feel like, yeah, (laughs) because I think it's such a a confusing time because my dogs eat grain-free. They get a combination of raw food and we buy a cana. That's one of my questions is, are there any healthier options out there that are available to consumers, you know, the stuff that tends to be in specialty stores. And you may tell me no, and that's okay. But that was one of the questions that came in. Is there anything that's commercially available? If we're not doing a raw food diet all the time, what other options are available? And I would imagine you probably have resources on your website or recipes of things that you generally recommend but out of curiosity, are there any brands out there existing right now that have your stamp of approval or is it just the raw food only? Oh, I have a lot of raw and gently cooked foods that have my stamp of approval. Absolutely. Some dehydrated foods, which are so easy for pet parents who say, oh my gosh, I don't want to deal with dry. I don't want to be- deal with things that are frozen or refrigerated, but then we can buy a dehydrated or a freeze-dried food, add water to it, poof, you have food. And high meat food, high quality food, human grade. So what we're really looking for is get our pets onto human grade food, not feed grade, not something that died out in the field and rotted for three days before it got made into your pet's food. So there's a great website, truthaboutpetfood.com. Susan Thixton, she's been our pet consumer advocate at AFCO for about 15 years now. She started it because her dog died of cancer that her veterinarian 20 years ago said, this is probably from the ethoxyquin, which is a preservative that's in the pet food. It's probably what caused the osteosarcoma and that's what killed her dog. And she has made it her life's mission to expose the pet food industry and make changes. And she's doing a great job. So truthaboutpetfood.com, she exposes a lot of this stuff. She has great pictures on there. Like here's the chicken we buy in the grocery store and that's what we imagine. And when you go in the grocery store and you look at the pictures on the labels of the pet food and you see filet mignon and you see carrots and peas and blueberries and you think that's in there it's not what you're getting is the green moldy chicken that's what's in there you're getting grains that are contaminated with molds because the moldy grain can't be fed to people so where does it go it gets hidden in the middle of the big truckloads that go into the pet food and the, another trick for people, when you're reading the ingredient list on the bag, look for where salt is in the ingredient list. Salt is at about 0.5% of the ingredients in the bag. So if the blueberries and carrots and broccoli and all the pretty things are listed below salt, you got one blueberry in that 20 pound bag. It is not doing any good for your pet. And we have actually challenged FDA because they are in charge of labeling. And we're like, look, Here's this bag of really low quality kibble, really awful quality. And it's got a picture of filet mignon and all these fresh veggies on the front. How is that truth in advertising? Their answer was, well, there's also a bowl of kibble on the front of the bag. And so people aren't foolish enough to think that that's what's actually in that bowl of kibble. I'm like, really? You don't think you're fooling people? You were fooling people. Yeah, of course. And I think it's so valuable to hear this information because I would imagine many listeners, myself included, will be making different and more concerted choices moving forward 
Now, I'd love to talk about vaccines. Both of us are not anti-vaccine. I want to be very upfront about that. But it was interesting when I was kind of prepping for this, there was this study out of University of Wisconsin-Madison that puppy vaccines last seven to nine years. And, and to your point, you'd mentioned earlier that we're not drawing titers on dogs and most commonly, we're just revaccinating our dogs. So you mentioned parvo, and obviously that's a catastrophic thing that can happen to dogs. So obviously vaccination against that. What are the vaccines other than rabies that we need to be considering whether doing titers every few years or are really part of the critically important ones for our pets? So there are core vaccines and non-core vaccines. So the ones that are considered core vaccines are distemper, hepatitis, parvo, and rabies. That is core. The only one that is legally mandated in the U.S. is rabies. And there are actually a couple of states that will allow rabies titers instead. And a titer is a blood test that tells you whether your pet has immunity against a specific disease. So rabies vaccines, the very first one your pet gets, no matter how old they are, is a one-year vaccine. That's just mandated. Although some pets will develop a lifelong immunity from one vaccine, but this is the law. And then the second vaccine they get, no matter how much later. So let's say you got that first vaccine when they were six months old, and then you forgot about it, and you got it again when they're three years old. Most veterinarians are going to say, oh, you have to start all over. We're going to start with a one year. No, it's a three year. No matter when they get that next one, it's a three year. So veterinarians in when I was practicing in New Jersey, a lot of the local veterinarians just said, Oh, my gosh, well, you know, we're not getting people in enough, we were going through a, you know, an economic depression, they were trying to get people in the office more. And so they said, Well, we're going to make our rabies vaccines be good for two years. So they would label the certificates good for two years. Their reasoning behind it was, well, we don't ever want anybody to be overdue on their vaccine. We want to make sure that the, like the vaccine miraculously runs out exactly on the third year anniversary. Like who made that up? So they started dating them for two years. Well, then all the clerks at the townships would not license the animals because the vaccine said it ran out. So they started getting people in for every two years. And I'm starting seeing these certificates. And I said, there's no legal entity that is a two-year vaccine like this is made up you go back to that veterinarian and you tell them you want a three-year certificate it's games that are played um, i had a client in texas who sent me her records to review and i the dog was like seven years old i said why are you getting a rabies vaccine every single year oh my gosh he said my veterinarian told me i had it was a small a cavalier king charles spaniel small dog she said my veterinarian says he's due for it every year and i said no, no, it's a three-year vaccine. So she called him up and said, why is my dog getting a rabies vaccine every year? And he said, state law in Texas. She calls me up. I said, well, let's look that up. I looked it up. I said, mm, state law in Texas is three years. So she calls him back again. And he says, it's county law. So we looked that up. No. She calls him back again. He says, it's my law. And she said, well, now we're getting to the truth and I'm never coming to you again. Because, you know, it was a scam to get her into the office every year, over-vaccinate her poor dog every year. The dog was suffering with allergies and IBD and all these other problems. And it's like, well, of course. So, you know, but this is the games that are played. And that's why it's so important for, and, you know, I'm not saying the veterinarian was doing it for money. I'm saying the veterinarian was doing it because he wanted to make sure 
that he had a way to get your dog in for that exam every year. Well, you know what? If my veterinarian says to me, I need to see your pet every year for a full examination, nose to tail, I'm going to be like, I'm all over it. I'm coming in. We're going to get some lab work. I want you to feel his belly. I want you to listen to his heart. I want you to look in his ears, look at his eyes, look at his teeth. That'll be great. But we don't need to do vaccines. Great. No problem. You know, it's sort of like you bring your kids in, you bring yourself in once a year just to have that physical exam, get your lab work done. Do it for your pets. But don't fall into the trap of he's got to come in because he needs his shots. No. So parvo probably lasts seven to nine years. Distemper probably lasts a lifetime. Hepatitis does last a lifetime. Good chance rabies lasts a lifetime, but we're all stuck with that law thing. So get around that however you can, whether you license, don't license, do titers, whatever. I have a lot of clients, they'll do rabies titers. They just don't license their animals because they don't want somebody to tell them that they have to do something based on a schedule. They want to do it based on what their animal says they need so they get titers run. The biggest thing that we run into with titers is that a lot of traditional veterinarians don't understand them, don't believe in them, and don't want to do them because it requires a little more work than just poking a vaccine. So what they'll tell you is that'll be $300. The vaccine is only 32, which do you wanna do? And so for the average pet owner who's standing there going, well, let's say I need a distemper titer, I need a parvo titer, I need a rabies titer, you're gonna charge me like seven, $800 to do that, or I can get all the vaccines for 50 bucks. Sometimes that's an economic decision and I can't blame clients and they get scared. So I find that an awful lot of what happens, I mean, look at the insurance industry. We all buy insurance because of fear. And a lot of what happens in the medical industry and the veterinary industry is out of fear. Oh, I better get those vaccines. It's funny. My daughter is, she works for my company, which is Naturally Healthy Pets. She's the COO. She is all about everything natural for her dogs and cats. I have a two and a half year old granddaughter. And I said, why did you get all these vaccines for Sarah? And she said, well, you never know. There could be a measles outbreak. And I'm like, all right, one vaccine might have worked. I mean, I, so, you know, for it's getting people to change. And so you probably have, because you're a, more of a human focused show, you probably have listeners who work really hard at feeding their family organic, fresh, brightly colored foods. And yet they're buying pet food in the supermarket that is labeled as natural, holistic. That means nothing. Those labels can be put on any bag of crap. They mean nothing. And I've talked to many clients who are like, oh my gosh, I thought I was doing the best. I was buying the most expensive one in the aisle. I was even going to the pet store and buying the one that said natural and holistic. And I didn't realize what was in there. And so, you know, we can see it go the other way too, where I have clients who are so into doing everything right for their pets. And yet they're eating at fast food restaurants every meal. So, and I've actually had clients who have completely changed their way of living because I changed their pet's way of living. I had one client, she had a boxer with cancer and she came to me and we did the diet for it. And the dog lived a couple of years and she was really happy. And then I didn't see her for a little while after the dog died and then she got a new puppy. And she came in and it had been months and I didn't recognize her. And she said, you don't know who I am. And I said, God, you kind of look familiar. And she pulled a picture out of her wallet and she said, this was my husband and I when we got married. She said, since you taught us how to feed our dog, we now are doing the same thing for ourselves. Between the two of them, they lost 250 pounds. 
I didn't know who they were. And so, you know, it goes both ways, but we need to look at kind of the whole family. And I'm not an anti-vaxxer. My youngest dog is a little over a year and a half. He came from a natural breeder. And so she does titers on the parents and she doesn't routinely deworm or give any, she tests for parasites. She doesn't vaccinate her dogs. She does titers doesn't give them chemicals. And so I got this fresh out of the box puppy who was weaned onto raw food. And he has had about two tenths of a distemper vaccine and two tenths of a parvo vaccine. And that's all he's ever had. He is the most energetic, I mean, he is only a year and a half old, but he's the most energetic, crazy dog I've ever had. And it'll be really interesting. Like, I hope this dog lives to be 25. He has a lot of congenital problems, and that's why I ended up with him. He has hydrocephalus, his joints bend the Mm -hmm. wrong way, he's got some issues, and he's cute. But even with, we do a lot of rescue, particularly a lot of puppy mill rescue. If people don't know about puppy mills, they should look into that. It's really a horrible way for animals to be bred and raised and sold in pet stores. But we rescue the used up dogs who are no longer available, you know, useful for breeding or they're so sick that they're about to die. But we've even taken some of those. We took in an eight-year-old male who just had so many medical problems uh, and he lived to be 19 because we completely changed the way that he was raised. So it's never too late, even if you have an older pet who's overweight, who's got arthritis, who has chronic inflammatory problems, it is never too late to make changes. And you'll be amazed at the changes that will occur in health, longevity, vitality, coat, decrease in dental issues, decrease in arthritis. It's amazing the changes we can make. Well, thank you for that. Because I I think for so many of us, we you know, wherever we are in our journey with our pets, whether this is new information, whether this is validation of the way that you're currently bringing up your pets and you're in your home, understanding that there's always improvements that we can be making along the way. One thing I really wanted to touch on because it came up when I asked my listeners quite a few times and to be completely transparent, I'm curious because I live in an endemic state for Lyme. I live in Virginia. The county that we moved from had the highest rate of tick-borne illnesses in the entire state. And so I was always conditioned because we do trail walks with our dogs because, you know, there's the potential for exposure that we should always have Lyme and Lepto vaccines because they go to a groomers because they're doodles. And I've just decided I'm not taking on that. I'm not going to take on the chore of trying to, you know, uh, scissor my dogs and clip their toenails and do all that. That's left to the experts. What are your thoughts on these kind of non-core vaccines that you've kind of alluded to? Because so many people were asking these questions, same as me, you know, I feel tremendous pressure and guilt. I mean, that's probably a byproduct of the way I was raised. But when I'm talking to the the new vet and I'm explaining, like, I really am one of those like less is more kind of people. Like if we need to do the vaccine, I accept that. But if I don't need to do the vaccine, I don't want to over vaccinate my pets. And so what are your thoughts on these non-core options? Okay. I have a brand new book out. It's called Raising Naturally Healthy Pets. I don't even have it on my shelf, but the longest chapter in there is on vaccines. And so it goes through every vaccine that is available for dogs and cats, what they're recommended for, how the diseases are transmitted and risk factors that would put your pet at risk for that. So the Lyme vaccine is a really horrible vaccine. It is only 60% effective if your dog has ever been exposed to Lyme. So if your dog has had a positive Lyme test in the past, whether they were symptomatic or not, 
the vaccine, if you give it after that, is only going to be about 60% effective. Even if you start it when they're puppies before they've had an exposure, it's about 80% effective. So it's not a great vaccine. We have no idea how long the vaccine lasts. There is no titer for it, but I can tell you that the tests that we would run on our dog patients every year is called an Acuplex. It's also known as a 4DX, and it tests for heartworm, anaplasma, ehrlichia, and Lyme disease, which are three tick-borne diseases. And so the Acuplex that was run at the lab would come back with either vaccine antibodies found, acute infection, or chronic exposure or negative. And what we were finding is that dogs that had had a vaccine seven and eight years earlier were still showing up with vaccine antibodies. Now, they don't call it a titer because the definition of a titer says you have to have a certain level in order for it to be considered protective. However, there are a lot of veterinary immunologists who say, no, any detectable antibodies is protective because there's something called memory cells in the body and they will kick in with a different kind of immunity if an exposure occurs. So why are we giving a vaccine every single year when we are finding vaccine antibodies seven to eight years later? So that's one thing. If your pet has ever had a Lyme vaccine, it may or may not actually work because it's only 60 to 80% effective at best. And it may still be protective or not. We don't know. And a positive test does not equate to Lyme disease. A positive test means that your dog has had an exposure and he's made antibodies. So there's a more specific test called a C6, which is a quantitative test that you can ask for that'll actually tell you the level. And I think it's 30 is the cutoff. And if it's above that, then you probably should treat. I'm not a huge fan of overuse of antibiotics, but you know, if you're in doubt, if your pet is symptomatic with a positive test, then you absolutely should treat. So I'm not a fan of the vaccine. I'm a fan of keeping ticks off your dog. And we can talk about that. And I used to, we camp a lot, and I used to hike in Gettysburg Park with my dogs, and there's signs everywhere. It's up in Pennsylvania, so huge tick area. I'm from New Jersey, huge tick area. We used to hike with our dogs, and we would use natural repellents on them, and we, you know, all the signs say stay on the path, don't go in the fields, high grasses, blah, blah, blah. I would put their natural repellents on them. We'd traipse through the fields, and nobody would come home with a tick. So there are natural ways that we can deal with that, and a lot of people say, oh, I've tried that. It doesn't work. If you've tried it and it didn't work, you didn't do it correctly. So, or you didn't use the right product or you didn't use the right combination of products. So that's my thoughts on the Lyme vaccine. I'm not a fan. I gave it very rarely and I've never given it to my dogs. Lepto vaccine, I used really rarely in my practice. I've never given it to my dogs. If you have a small dog, the chances of them having an allergic reaction to the vaccine, potential shock reaction are very high. I would not even give it to a dog under 10 pounds in my practice, no matter what their lifestyle was. Lepto is spread by rats, raccoons, possums, skunks, foxes, and dairy cattle, and it's spread through urine. So puddles, standing water, streams that don't really run, that's where you're going to find it. And so particularly like the raccoons who go down to the water to wash their food, that's where we see it. However, almost all lepto outbreaks that we have seen in this country in the past few years have been rats rats in the cities. So the city dogs are actually more at risk these days. For instance, after COVID and New York City was shut down, the rat population, they actually just hired a rat czar. The rat population is out of control. And so the lepto cases have gone up because we have all these rats running around. So if you live in the city, how do you protect your dog from rat urine? 
You get something called walkie paws, which are these great little leggings that are easy to put on your dog. They were invented by a woman in New York City who has a little white dog and lives in a high rise. And she said, I am not walking my dog on those streets and then having it sleep in my bed. So those are awesome. <laughs> so that's how you can protect your dog's feet and then, you know, keep their nose up off the ground. And don't let them be sniffing and licking and eating things that are icky. So in my 36 years of practice, I saw three cases of lepto. All the dogs survived because uh, it is treatable with antibiotics, the problem is diagnosing it. So, you know, if your dog is not feeling well, if they've got blood in their urine, they're real lethargic, they have a fever, get them in, get them checked. So the three cases that I saw, one dog got it at a dog show, one dog got it in the woods at a training center, and the other dog, I don't know where it got it because that was in an emergency clinic, and that was very early on. So we don't, it's not as common as they'd like it to be. I remember, I think it was last summer, there was a huge press release, an article that went out and said, lepto outbreak in Hoboken, New Jersey. And I read the article, there were four cases. <laughs> That's an outbreak. And so, you know, the veterinarians love this. It's like everybody runs in to get their lepto vaccine. And lepto is trans, it's zoonotic, it's transmissible mm -hmm. to people. None of the cases that I had did any of the other animals in the house get sick or any of the people get sick. So take that for what you will. So it's not a vaccine that I've ever given my dogs. It's highly reactive vaccine. It's not a good vaccine. It only lasts for nine to 12 months. So you do have to give that one every year. It's if interesting because my new city, the new vet, who I haven't found my favorite vet yet, but I, I know it's going to happen, fear-mongered the heck out of us last summer and was just going, well, you're, you're walking in trails. We have a lot of wildlife in our neighborhood. Your dogs are definitely coming in contact with wildlife urine. It's endemic for ticks around here. So of course, it's one of those things where I just said, I'm not anti, is my typical, I'm not anti-vaccine. I'm an educated individual. I'm just asking, is this necessary? And that got this otherwise very nice vet got her on the defensive. Now, I think it's important to at least briefly touch on flea and tick preventatives, because this is an area in particular where we're seeing a lot of side effects related to these medications, much to your point, sometimes in smaller animals, smaller dogs, cats, they're getting the same dose as much larger animals. And so what are some of your recommendations about how to navigate flea and tick season? I know you mentioned, you know, we're in this very kind of puritanical society. We don't want to ever see a tick. We don't ever want to see a flea, but we also have to balance that with making sure we're not harming our pets in the process. So the big takeaway here is that almost all of the chemicals that are used topically and orally for our pets for fleas and ticks do not repel. So the flea or tick has to get on your pet, plus or minus bite your pet and have a blood meal in order to die. And Lyme disease, we used to think took 48 hours to be transmitted to your dog. Mm -mm. It can happen very quickly. So if the tick is attached and taking a blood meal for 12 hours before it gets enough chemical in it to die and fall off, that's enough time for it to transmit Lyme disease. And I remember when we first started testing for Lyme and I would get all these positive tests, people would say to me, but I've been putting that topical on every single month. I've never missed a dose. How can my dog have Lyme disease? Well, I still got bitten by the tick because it doesn't repel. So that's the first thing for people to really understand. And ticks are more difficult than fleas. Like fleas are a piece of cake. The biggest problem with fleas is they only spend 5% of their time on the pet. So 95% of the life cycle is in the environment. So it's in your house, in your rugs, in your crawl space, in your yard. And people get so focused on giving chemicals to the pet 
they never think about treating the environment. So they're missing 95% of the problem. So if you're having a flea problem, yes, use, so we have great blogs. We actually did an entire week, which is on YouTube and Instagram and Facebook last month on parasites and parasite prevention, natural parasite prevention. We actually have an ebook that people can purchase on flea tick and heartworm prevention, treatment, blah, blah, blah. So that has a ton of information in there. For my own dogs, I really work on environmental control, my dogs and cats. So I have a huge clouder of cats. We have 11 cats because we have a farm and a couple pregnant mommies showed up at the same time. And we really stink at giving away kittens. We gave away one. <laughs> <laughs> so we have all these cats and they live outside, mostly in our barn. They also come in the house and I mean, they're just sweet, wonderful kitties. So who's going to be exposed to fleas? It's going to be those cats because they're mousing and they're, you know, collecting little rodents and things. So far, we don't have a flea problem with them. We live in the South. And part of the reason we don't have a flea problem is because they're raw fed. They've only had one vaccine. They're about, they're just over a year old. They're very healthy. Their immune system says, I'm not going to let these parasites attack me. So we don't have a huge problem. But what I do have for them is I have a natural parasite dust. So for barn kitties, that's really easy because I just put a little bit of powder in my hand and I pet the cat. It's like, great, fleas and ticks be gone. For our dogs, we keep them mostly in a mowed yard where fleas and ticks don't like to live. They really like to live in the woods. So for those who are hiking in the woods, that's a much bigger problem. Or the tall grasses, that's a much bigger problem. So things that we recommend, essential oil sprays. There's a bunch of them on our website, essential oil sprays. And some of them are lavender based, some of them are lemongrass based. And it's really interesting that we have found in different areas of the country, sometimes one will do better than the other. So if you're using, and there's cedar oil based sprays, there's a lot of different essential oil sprays available. So if you're using one and it's not working, switch to something that's a different base because you may live in an area where the fleas are like lemongrass, who cares? So try something different, try a different company. We have a couple of different ones on our website. You can also use oral feed throughs. So there are garlic supplements. You can also use fresh garlic. It is not toxic to dogs. We have doses on our website. So garlic is not toxic and it actually is a great flea and tick repellent. So you can feed, it needs to really be fresh or there are some supplements with it. And then we also have two other feed through supplements. One's called Bug Off and the other one is I don't even remember flea something, flea and tick defense, I think, but they have herbs in them that you feed your pets that make them taste bad. So the fleas and ticks are like, Ugh, God, they smell bad. They taste bad. I, you can't smell it, but they can. So we work on, and then we also have ultrasonic collars. We have scalar wave collar or collar tags, scalar wave collar tags, so many different ways that you can approach it. And if you're, for instance, you're in Virginia, that's a very high tick area. I'd be doing everything. I'd be using a feed through, I'd be using a topical spray and the sprays, the essential oil sprays, every time you're gonna go walk in the woods, you need to spray the dog. It's not you know, once a month, it's not that simple, but it's so much healthier for your pet. So do the feed throughs, do the topicals, add a tag on. My puppy, the one that is not vaccinated very well, although it's enough for him, he seems to be the flea magnet. If I ever get a flea, it's gonna be him. And so I was using my soap, my flea soap and washing him once a week because I kept finding fleas on him. I'm like, man, why is it you? Nobody else with fleas. And so I finally put one of the ultrasonic tags on, problem solved. 
So there's just a lot of different ways to attack it. Now we can talk about, and I'm going to have to jump on this soapbox because this one makes me crazy. The oral flea and tick chemicals that last one month or last three months, they've been around since 2014 and have killed hundreds of thousands of dogs and cats worldwide, hundreds of thousands. And that is the number of reports that we have to the EPA and the FDA, which is the European and US drug reporting systems. Only 1% of drug reactions are reported. That's the estimate. 1% of adverse events are reported. So if we have 100,000 animals dead that are reported, how many does that translate to that are not reported? And then we have hundreds of thousands of animals that uh, have seizures, seizure disorders that they are stuck with for life. One dose of medication can be enough to make your dog have seizures for the rest of their life. There are many lawsuits occurring class action lawsuits on these drugs. I got word a couple of weeks ago that Europe is thinking about pulling these drugs off the market. Australia, on the other hand, has made them over the counter. They don't even have to be prescribed by a veterinarian. So go figure. I have finally found the cleanest and best tasting protein powder. It's called Clean Simple Eats. And for me personally, I am absolutely dairy sensitive and I have been able to successfully try their protein powder with no digestive distress. I love this protein powder because it is exactly what it states. It's clean and simple. It's always grass fed with no seed oils, no junky sugary ingredients, no artificial ingredients. And it is also third party tested, non-GMO and gluten free. I think all of you know, these things are very important to me. We know that protein is one of the most important macronutrients. And for many people that are intermittent fasting, they struggle getting in enough protein in their feeding window. And each serving has 20 grams of protein, making it a perfect addition to breaking your fast or using it during the course of your feeding window. They actually have 26 delicious all-natural flavors. Personally, I like the chocolate brownie batter, but they have chocolate mint, they've got cookie dough, and they have a delicious Simply Vanilla, which you can mix with just about anything. My entire family, especially my teenagers, really like the powders, and they also enjoy the clean Simple Eats Clear Protein Drinks, which are also clean and have 20 grams of grass-fed protein each. So if you want to try this new protein powder out, I promise you will not be disappointed. You want to go to www.cleansimpleeats.com and use code wellness20 at checkout for 20% off your first order. That's cleansimpleeats.com and use code wellness20 for 20% off your first order. If you try it out, let me know what your favorite flavor is. Consuming Element on a daily basis is one of my favorite ways to take care of my health. And we know that by consuming proper amounts of electrolytes, it can contribute to quality sleep, which is critical to all of my perimenopause and menopausal patients and clients. We know that magnesium increases a neurotransmitter called GABA that is known for producing calming effects. And consuming adequate levels of sodium can help you sleep through the night because low sodium levels increase cortisol and adrenaline. Additionally, if you are intermittent fasting, it's important to understand that when you fast, two things can dehydrate you. Number one, if your insulin levels remain low, it can signal to our kidneys to excrete more sodium or salt, a process called naturesis. 
And as glycogen or stored glucose is broken down, the water left over from the glycogen breakdown is urinated out. So if you want to take care of your health in one of my favorite ways, you can consume Element electrolytes. My favorite flavors are grapefruit and citrus, but there are many others to choose from. And if you go to drinkelement.com slash Cynthia, you can get a free sample pack to try them out on your own. Again, it's drinklmnt.com slash Cynthia for your free sample pack where you can try all of their flavors. That's a tremendous extreme of, you know, I always find that Europe tends to be much more progressive than the United States. The United States is so, you know, beholden to the pharmaceutical industry, the processed food industry in many instances where it's not really protecting consumers as well as their pets. Yeah, we Um, had a conversation with the FDA about these drugs about uh, four years ago. And at the time they said there haven't been enough deaths yet. Wow. If only 1% are reported, it's... Right. And my answer to them is, look, if it's my pet, that's 100% for me. And the problem is the veterinarians are in denial. So I have, I get reports and clients calling me all the time. You know, their animals are having these reactions and problems. And I had one that had a dose of the medication and started seizuring uncontrollably. Dog was put on three different anti-seizure medications, went and had the MRI and the spinal tap and the whole nine yards, and they couldn't find anything, of course because these chemicals are neurotoxins. They are toxic to the neurologic system. And so when they went to the neurologist, they said, we would like to use natural flea and tick prevention from here on out because our dog is having these seizure problems secondary to this chemical. And the neurologist said, oh, no, no, no. It's not related to the drug. It's fine. You can keep using that. Well, I mean, the degree of cognitive dissonance, even in the veterinary community, is astounding. And for listeners to know that you know, we use the oral garlic tablets, we have the ultrasonic collar, we do spray the dogs. Because the more I started learning about how neurotoxic these drugs were, I was like, there has to be a better option. And my dogs love being outside. They love being in the in the yard. They love being in the woods. And so they're definitely potentially exposed to these things. But thus far, knock on wood, we have not had a problem. There were some specific- And tick-borne diseases are treatable. Yes. So it's yes. just a matter of- if you're in a high tick area and you're really concerned, you can have the test run three or four times a year and just say, look, every few months, I'm just going to run in. I'm going to get a blood test drawn. And, you know, that's a cheap, I mean, not free, but it's a, a fairly inexpensive way to catch something early or if your dog becomes symptomatic. So all of the tick-borne diseases have very similar, you know, they're flu-like symptoms. They might have a swollen joint. I had my house got infested once years and years, 20 years ago with ticks. Every single dog had Lyme disease. I came up from the beach one day, opened the door, and there was my little dog with a swollen knee, holding her leg up, acting like she broke her leg. I'm like, well, you've been in the house, so you didn't break your leg. And every, I think we had five dogs at the time, and every single one of them had Lyme disease because we had a tick infestation. And I know exactly, I had taken the dog out to pee in the high grass, brought in a bunch of ticks, unbeknownst to me. So lesson learned. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, there were sp- some specific questions that came through that I think are kind of high level, but very applicable lipomas. So these fatty tumors, if I were to ask my vet what caused it, I always get this blank expression, you know, it's something to do with their liver. But I think you have a whole podcast episode talking about lipomas. And I would love for you to kind of 
walk us through. Now I have a labradoodle and I know in labs, they're very common, but it's now gotten to the point where he's, you know, he looks lumpy, you know, he's 11 years old. We've gotten to the point now we don't even question it. We're like, oh, he has another lipoma. He just seems to collect them. And this is a dog who, you know, walks four to five miles a day, eats a pretty healthy diet. I mean, gets fed like sweet potato as a treat. I mean, he's got a pretty good life. I would say my dogs have a great life, but the lipoma piece, I was shocked slash curious learning that it is related to detoxification issues and this overburden of the, of toxins in the body. And this is even coming from one of my pets. So I can imagine, you know, the vast majority of people that all this information is really new. It's probably blowing their minds. Let's talk about lipomas. Yeah. So that was a podcast that was just released a couple of weeks mm-hmm. ago with Rita Hogan, who's an herbalist, and she had some really interesting ideas on lipomas. But they're basically areas of toxin deposition and the body is walling it off. And so it's um, it looks like fat. It looks like a huge glob of fat when you take them out. They're 95 percent benign. I have seen a few liposarcomas, which are really aggressive, ugly managed to treat a lot of them holistically though, which was great. So lipomas can be removed, but if your dog has a lot of toxins, they're going to keep making them. You can chase them around. Uh, Before I was doing things more holistically, my last Doberman, wasn't my last Doberman, a couple Dobermans back, but anyway, he had 80. So my kids and I sat there one day when he was like 10 or 11 years old and started counting his lumps. I was like, this will be a fun game. And we got up to 80 and I gave up. He had lumps everywhere. I can tell you that since I don't feed, first of all, lipomas are much more common in large, medium to large breed dogs. Since I got so many clients off kibble, lipomas became something that was history. So it's over vaccination, kibble, and all the synthetic vitamins. So when you look at the food that you're feeding and you see that whole chemical list, that's all synthetic. And your dog's body, if you were getting your, just like ours, if you're getting your vitamins and minerals from whole foods, the body uses what it needs and kind of spits out the rest. Like it's really hard to OD on vitamin D from whole food, but if you're giving a vitamin D supplement, yeah, you can put them in kidney failure really fast. So, you know, the body knows what it needs. When we throw synthetics at it, the body goes, that's a foreign invader. I think I need to attack that and I need to wall that off. So it's synthetics and food, it's vaccinations, it's chemicals, it's all these things that we are, and and environmental toxins as well. Let's not forget those because that's something we don't have quite as much control over, although we do have control over what we're using to clean our house and that sort of thing. So lipomas can be dissolved. So this is where my Chinese medicine is going to come in. If you look up a list of phlegm draining foods, things like pears and clams and peppermint, and you start adding those into your dog's diet. And if you get your dogs off kibble, a lot of times you'll see those lipomas start to shrink. Some acupuncturists will do something called surround the dragon where they put needles around the lipomas and that'll help start getting them to shrink as well. And then we definitely see more lipomas in obese dogs. So obesity is a huge problem, but carbohydrates break down to sugars and those are highly inflammatory for our dogs. That's not what they're meant to eat. So kibble is going to be at least 50 to 60% carbohydrates. There's just no way around it. They can't make an extruded kibble that has less than that. It won't stick together as a kibble. So, and when you read the label on the bag, they don't list carbohydrates on there. They list fat, 
protein, moisture, and ash. They don't list carbs. So basically, if you add up those and subtract from 100, that's how much carbs you have. That's a really important distinction to make because I think even well-meaning pet owners like myself, thinking we're buying this, you know, it's pork and squash, you know, it's, it's, you know, grain-free, but there is unnecessary carbohydrate in there that we can be feeding our pets that can be unknowingly contributing to this problem. I think this is- Synthetic vitamins. Yeah, really, it's huge. And I think even in the podcast, they were talking about avoiding fatty meats. So, you know, land salmon, which is lamb and duck or things to avoid because there can be some degree of fat malabsorption. Is that correct? There can be. And I'm, I don't feed lamb much to my dogs anyway. I do feed pork because le- pork is actually very lean if you're buying the right pork. Salmon, I don't feed large fish very often. So that's kind of a treat now and then. White fish is not so bad because that's very lean. So it just depends. Like my dogs are on a huge rotation. There's probably 12 different proteins in my freezer and there's at least four different brands of pet food in my freezer. Plus I make my own sometimes. So I'm a huge fan of rotation with diets. This whole put the same thing in the bowl twice a day, every day is just so horrible. No, I agree with you. And in fact, I always say monogamy is a good thing. However, food monogamy is not. So we want to be, even as, as humans, we want to be having different proteins, different vegetables. Let's talk about teeth how to keep teeth healthy. Do you buy into the fact that you have to brush your dog's teeth every day? What type of toothpaste do you recommend? If at all, curious how you feel about that. So dogs who are fed high carbohydrate diets are going to have a lot more tartar on their teeth. It's sort of like us eating candy bars all the time and never brushing our teeth. So if you are a raw feeder and your dog is chewing on raw meaty bones, which is what they're meant to chew on, then they're going to have very few dental problems, although occasionally a really aggressive chewer may crack a tooth. So it's still very, very important to have a dental exam at least once a year. For those who are not feeding raw meaty bones, you really do need to brush your dog's teeth every day. If you think about it, humans brush our teeth twice a day. We floss twice a day, if we're good. We floss twice a day and we go to the dentist and have a professional cleaning twice a year. And then we look at our dogs, we ignore their mouth for a whole year and they're being fed starchy carbs that break down to sugar. So their teeth are always coated with sugar, uh, which screws up the microbiome, which is the bacterial population in their mouth. And they make tartar. And then we look in there two years later and go, ew, why does he have bad breath? Oh my gosh, all his teeth are loose. Oh, that's horrible. So yeah, brushing, because we don't floss their teeth and we don't get professional dental cleanings twice a year. So brushing becomes really pivotal. I don't like any of the toothpastes that are on the market. They all have a lot of chemicals in them. So my recommendation is organic coconut oil, or we have a couple of DIY toothpaste recipes on our website. One uses a probiotic that we really like, and you mix that with the coconut oil so that you're getting a better microbiome in the mouth to help prevent that tartar buildup. And the other one, we have a dental drop that is my own label that you can mix with the coconut oil as well. So not all pets like to have their teeth brushed and it becomes something where you have to train them. So ideally you would train them as a puppy or kitten to allow you in there. So unless your dog or cat is one who is going to bite you right off the bat, I recommend dip your finger in a little coconut oil or bone broth and just start rubbing along the gums and get them used to just having something in there. Then you can buy, there's a little soft finger brush that has little tiny bristles on it, little coconut oil on that, use that and work your way up to actually using a toothbrush. 
There are a lot of different doggy toothbrushes available on the market. Otherwise you can use a pediatric toothbrush works really well. So unfortunately we do have to do some sort of dental care for our pets. We ignore their teeth for way too long. You know, my early years in practice, I used to say, if I saw a Yorkie with any teeth left in its mouth after age seven, it was a miracle because we ignored their teeth. We never did anything for them. The problem with ignoring dental disease is all that bacteria in the mouth, bloodstream through there, goes to the heart valves, goes to the kidneys. We see heart failure, we see kidney failure, secondary to not taking care of the mouth. So it was really, really critical. Yeah. And it's important. It's interesting. Coconut oil has these antimicrobial properties. So my dogs actually don't mind having their teeth brushed and they have only had both needed to have their teeth cleaned once. So I always say like I had a Bichon freeze and it was like every year from the age of five on, it was like every year. And she, I didn't know any better back then. And she used to get, get Yukonuba because that's what the vet had recommended, which I now know is crap in terms of exercise depending on the dog or the cat, obviously, how much, how often, I mean, my dogs at 10 and 11 walk three to five miles a day easily, unless it's really hot because it does get warm here in the summer, but I'll get them on the treadmill as well. Very, very low speed just to kind of improve them. When you're talking about exercise, same thing as I talk to adults about exercise, what are your overall prevailing suggestions? Every day. Some sort of exercise, do not be weekend warriors. Do not take your dog out on Saturday or Sunday and play Frisbee with them at the park all day and then expect them to move on Monday. They need mental stimulation, mm-hmm. first of all. They need interaction. So my 15 and a half year old dog, he goes out and just his exercises, wandering around the backyard, doing smell tours and checking his P-mail and <laughs> uh, you know, just having a good old time out there for an hour or two a day. And then my young puppy, he goes out, our backyard is probably a half acre fence and it's surrounded by donkeys and horses and chickens. And he literally spends hours at top speed racing around the yard, saying hi to all of his friends and just having a really good time. We just adopted about a five-year-old cocker and he has a jolly ball, which is a ball with a handle on it. He will chase that ball hours on end if we will continue to throw it for him. So he gets two or three about half hour times out there. And then I have a, um, oh gosh, she's like seven English toy spaniel. And her idea of exercise is sitting outside the door waiting to come back in. So, but I still make her go out there and get some stimulation. And I, sometimes I carry her out to the back of the yard to make her walk up to the house just because she needs some exercise. <laughs> Obviously, um, a lot of it is personality dependent. Yes, but then also just playing with them, interacting with them. And then for people with cats, just because you have an indoor cat who sleeps all the time, that doesn't mean they don't need exercise. They absolutely need exercise, particularly if they're on a dry kibble diet, which is the worst thing you could ever feed to a cat why we have so many obese cats. They need exercise. So laser tag is actually really good. You can teach them to chase balls, chase toys, and they actually will learn to play fetch. They can be very dog-like. If you're doing laser tag with your cats, the one thing that I will tell you, it's very frustrating for a cat to not get the prey at the end. So you have to give them something at the end of laser tag, like they have to win. So whether that's, you know, we have these little wool mice toys on the website, balls or a treat, something that they like so that at the end, when they make that final pounce, they land on something that they get to take off to their lair and be like, I win. You know, the hunt of the thrill of the chase was great. So don't frustrate your cat, make sure that they win at the end. 
Yeah, such an important distinction. And and obviously the mental and physical stimulation is certainly very important. There's one last question that came up multiple times, not an issue that my pets are having, but many people (laughs) indicating that their dog's anal glands are problematic, that, you know, they have to go to the vet every month. And the questions came in about, is it normal for me to have to take my dog to the vet every month to have their anal glands expressed? I'm guessing no. Is there also an element of ruling out parasites that could be mitigating some of the issues with anal glands or what are your general thoughts? If someone has to have their pet going that regularly, what else potentially again, high level, because this is not your patient, what could be some of the potential issues that are driving this? I actually have a blog on anal glands. <laughs> and, you know, one of the things that I say is stop tweaking the tushy because what happens is we cause scar tissue over time, inflammation every time we squeeze those anal glands. So we really don't want to. The only time we want to express an anal gland, if it is truly, truly impacted with a very thick secretion that won't come out. If it's a liquid secretion, they're going to get it out unless they have an anatomical defect back there. So again, when I have pets on the correct diet, the chances of having anal gland problems go way down. Like I've never squeezed an anal gland on any of my dogs or my cats. It's just not an issue. They're raw fed. So they get fiber in their diet. They get bone in their diet because it's raw, never feed a cook bone. So a lot of it is diet. And so the anal glands are a scent gland. And when the stool passes out the back end of the animal, the glands are at the five and seven o'clock position on the anus. So when the stool passes through there, if the stool is a well-formed solid stool, it puts pressure on it and that causes the scent to be released so that you know they're leaving their scent and their mail around the yard so that's the first thing to look at if you're having to have those cleaned out all the time does your pet have a good well-formed stool if they don't you could try adding fiber supplements so there's a ton of them on the market but ground pumpkin seed works really well Again, my raw fed animals who have decent bone content in their food, I just never have an issue. They have just this beautiful, small, firm poop. By the way, people, if you switch from a kibble to a raw food, you'll notice that the amount of poop goes down by about half and the amount of water that they consume will go down by about 90% because they're getting the moisture in their diet and they're digesting their food instead of just sort of processing it on out. And I get a lot of people who complain about the cost, what you will save in veterinary bills, not having to go to the veterinarian every month to have the tushy tweaked or the groomer, you'll save the money. That's incredible. This has just been a really enlightening conversation. I really value your experiences, your perspective. I'm so grateful that my listeners will be able to learn from you. How do we go about finding a holistic minded vet, because that has been my challenge in my new city. I finally found a vet that does acupuncture. So I will be seeing her later this week for my 11 year old dog. But if you live across the United States or abroad, are there any regulating agencies or any, you know, places where they can go, where they can try to find, or do they just need to Google a holistic vet and hope there's someone in their area, any resources for them? 
Yeah, absolutely. So in my in the new book, Raising Naturally Healthy Pets, there's a whole chapter on finding your veterinarian and how to decide who's the right one for you and how to talk to them. And if you can't find a holistic veterinarian, how do you deal with the veterinarian that you have? So the easiest place to look for what might be a holistic veterinarian is ahvma.org. It's the American Holistic Veterinary Medical Association, ahvma.org. They have a veterinary finder on there and then under each state, and it'll tell you what the veterinarian is certified in, whether it's acupuncture, chiropractic, food therapy, whatever. With that said, any veterinarian can join the AHVMA and be on that site. So we find some veterinarians who are trained in acupuncture, but they're still recommending a lot of flea and tick chemicals. They're still recommending prescription diets. They're against raw feeding. So just because you find somebody on that list doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be exactly where you want to be. Now, when I moved from New Jersey to North Carolina two and a half years ago, I did not get a license in North Carolina. So I had to find a veterinarian for my animals. We have 56 animals right now. And so I had to find a veterinarian for my animals. And first I started with a house call veterinarian who's very nice and she was from overseas. And so she was really into the raw feeding and making your own food and because they look at things a little differently in some other countries. So she was great, but she didn't have the facilities that I needed for everything that I needed done. So a new veterinarian came to town and I thought, well, you know what? I'm just gonna go take some animals, interview her, see what we got. She's young, been out of school maybe five years. And I walked in with four dogs and a cat and introduced myself. She had never heard of me. And I had my stack of books with me and I handed her my books. And I said, this is who I am. I'm really holistic. I feed my animals raw and I don't vaccinate them. You okay with that? And she went, sure. And I thought, well, this is great. (laughs) And so it's funny, a lot of people now go to her because they know that I go to her, but she's very traditional. And one of her technicians said to me, well, if somebody comes in and they say that they can't because they asked what the referral source was, and if they say they came because of you, it's a totally different conversation with those clients than their traditional clients. Like they never mention flea and tick chemicals. They don't push vaccines. They're fine with the raw feeding. So it really sometimes is just a matter. You may have a very traditional veterinarian that like you, you can have a conversation and agree to disagree and say, well, this is my belief system. This is how I want. I'm responsible for my pet and I'm willing to accept that responsibility. Look, if he gets left out because I didn't vaccinate him, I accept that responsibility. I'm going to pay you to treat him. Okay. You know, so try not to back them into a corner. Don't put them on the defensive because that's where it just goes really south really fast. For some people, like if you have to go to an emergency service with your pet at night and you're a raw feeder, you might have to lie. Yeah, yeah, they'll um, think you're crazy. They do. Sometimes <laughs> we took years ago, we took one of our dogs in who was having an ear ablation surgery. It was one of our rescues. And we took freeze dried raw in because he had to spend the night. And I thought, well, you know, they don't have to put it in the refrigerator. All they have to do is add water. This will be so simple. They flipped out and said, oh my gosh, that's raw food. My husband's standing there with the bag going, well, it's freeze dried. And they said, no, that's raw food. They put the dog in isolation. And for anybody to touch the dog, they had to cap, gown, mask, put on gloves, the gown, the booties, the whole nine yards, and kept my dog in isolation. Made my husband take the dog food home and bring back cooked food. (laughs) Wow. That seems a little bit of overkill. Good Lord. It is overkill, but that's the belief system that a lot of them have. So we had a cat who just broke his leg and we had to take him in for orthopedic surgery. And I'm like, he's on homemade food. And I I didn't even push it 
pay us that I was like, I'm not fessing up here because I need this cat to have surgery right now. Yes. Yes. And I mean, and that's the unfortunate thing. I know even for myself, when I go to the vet, I, I generally don't want them to know that I have a medical background, but in, inevitably I'll use a term and they'll say, well, yeah. You know. <laughs> And then I have to fess up, but I just say, listen, I'm human person. I'm not the expert here. However, these are the things that are important to me. And, and so trying to navigate, finding, finding the right person for us. Um, I'm, I'm hopeful this open-minded acupuncture veterinarian on Friday will be able to kind of fill in the gaps. Please let my community know how to connect with you online, how to go in your email list, how to purchase your books, which will be an incredible resource how to check out your products. And I was doing that last night, kind of realizing I, after speaking with you, I was probably going to be doing some shopping for our dogs. <laughs> so our website is drjudymorgan.com, drjudymorgan.com. You can also get there through naturallyhealthypets.com. We are on all the different social media channels. And if you sign up for our newsletter on the website, you will instantly get an email that gives you the list of pet foods that I am willing to feed my own pets. It's a fairly short list. And that doesn't mean that those are the only ones that are good. It's just those are ones that I have actually fed to my pets and would continue to feed to my pets. And then my books are available on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, on our website. We have just tons and tons and tons of information on our social media, tons of blogs. And we also have Dr. Judy U, where we have courses available on dog longevity, cat longevity, homemade dog food 101 for people who are interested in, in learning how to make their own food. We have courses on how to interpret your pet's lab work because veterinarians aren't always so forthcoming with all that information. We're trying to empower pet parents to take control of their pet's health and be able to navigate the veterinary system better. Well, thank you so much for all the work that you do. And it's really been an invaluable conversation. Thank you. If you love this podcast episode, please leave a rating and review, subscribe and tell a friend. 